This talk was given by Ron Hogan Green Sensei at the Zen Center of New York City. Hogan Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order and co-director of ZCNYC. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation or find out more about the temple's retreats and residency programs, visit our website at zmm.org/ccnyc. Thanks for listening. The the Jataka tales are tales of the previous life of the Bodhis of the Buddha. Um, so he's a bodhisattva, if you will, and the context is um, the most important thing, what are the lessons of the tale? So don't get caught up in the details that are appropriate to that time and place and may not be appropriate to our time and place. Um, so it's really that simple. Um, this is not about um, uh, culturally looking at it through our eyes of this culture and going back and applying it to that culture. Different times, different places places by thousands of years. Um, also, don't get caught up in the, de the fine details of the tale. We're looking at the, at the principles of it and what is the teaching that's being offered. That's the important thing. Uh, appreciate that all of the tales are about the Bodhisattva, the would-be, the coming Buddha. Uh, so we know who the, quote, hero is, but um, what's the lesson that's being offered? And... Um, and, you know, by implication, why would I pick this tale? There are hundreds of uh, such uh, uh, offerings. Why am I picking this one? Um, so, Magda, would you read the... Uh... No, no. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. No. <laughs> you knew I was going to ask you. Huh? You knew I was going to ask you. Yeah. Uh, the Bodhisattva named Kasapa is the son of the royal priest and his best friend, Brahmadatta, is the prince and royal here. When the king dies, Brahmadatta becomes king. Kasapa thinks, um, he will offer me wealth and power. What need have I for such things? I choose to devote myself to the way of the sages. So off he goes into the Himalayas, dedicated to intense spiritual practice. Chakra, king of the gods, grows concerned. The Bodhisattva, now named Loma, Loma Kasapa, or Harry Kasapa because of his long hair and hairy body, is meditating so rigorously that Chakra thinks, I must slow him down, or in time he'll su supplant me. I must make him slip up. Late in the night, the radiant god Chakra awakens Brahmadatta, king of Varanasi and tells him he must have his old friend Lom uh, Loma Kasapa perform a sacrifice of many animals. If he does, Chakra says, Brahmadatta will not only gain long life, but will become king of all India. Overjoyed, Brahmadatta sends his most senior counselor to offer Loma Kasapa a, a vast hermitage if he will return to Varanasi and perform the sacrifice. But the Bodhisattva refuses, saying, I'd never harm living beings. Chakra reappears and, discovering the failure, tells the king to try again. But this time, he says, offer him your beautiful daughter, Shandavati, in marriage. Lomakasapa has been alone for a long time and is a man. The counselor 
returns with uh, Shandavati, the king's daughter, and again makes the request. Seeing the girl, this time the Bodhisattva agrees. In Varanasi, a great sacrificial pit um, has been dug and a long line of animals now waits beside it. The Bodhisattva is handed a great sword with which to do the killing. As he raises it to strike the first animal in the line, the crowd of people shout, shouts, Stop, you are a man of peace, you should not kill. The elephant that is about to be killed had previously seen service in the king's wars. When the sword is raised towards his neck, he recognizes his danger and trumpets loudly in terror. All the other animals also scream and bellow. Um, the Bodhisattva, hearing the shouts, screams and bellows, remembers his vows. Ashamed, he lowers his weapon. The king begs him to continue, but, but rising uh, cross-legged in the air, Loma Kassapa gives a dharma talk on impermanence, attention, compassion, selflessness and repentance, then flies back to his hermitage. So, what is this story about? Why is it being offered? Uh, so, what, what's, uh, what's interesting for me to observe in all of these stories and teachings is that all of that takes, uh, takes place inside oneself, in some way. That as, as universe develops in a, in a fractal pattern, you're seeing the same pattern repeating inside, outside, throughout time and space, and replicating itself in the same way. That's why we can so easily relate to these stories that occurred thousands of years ago. So, the, you know, in essence, this is, this is the, the journey. Um, you know, we have... The Kasapa, I have a Kasapa inside me, and I have Brahmadatta, who is interested in more of the world we gain. Um, and so, you know, the pattern is, is that, you know, I practice, I take up certain teachings and precepts, uh, and then um, uh, the, um, the part of me that you know, wants to obstruct the development here represented as chakra or later as Mara, you know, it, it tries to divert me from, from, my, um, from my objective. And uh, so it's, it's very interesting. I mean, I, I go through this daily, weekly, monthly. It's just the same pattern. So, um, you know, let's say I made the promise not to eat meat and so... You know, same way. If I feel, if I feel, um, I walk by a restaurant and I'm seeing like smelling delicious meat, and there is the tempter. It's like, why don't you take it? Because it smells so good. You know, everybody eats meat. You know, and then you know what? What I do is a practice. I just imagine slaughtering this animal, and I say, would I take a knife and kill it? Because I actually do it, and I'm just like being open. If you know. I might as well do it consciously, and if I cannot do it, you know, consciously, then I wouldn't, I wouldn't have somebody else do it for me. So, but, and then, and so that passes, and then if I get weak or I get sick, they say, well, you really need to eat it, you know, because now you can't work, 
or you, you want to regain your strength, so then I might, it might tempt me and I might have some meat. And then I feel terrible because I just know it. It's just like this part of me is like it messes me up completely. Like I get aggressive, and it's almost like I'm absorbing all the suffering of that animal. And, and so I think, I think like, you know, this has to happen a couple of times before, before I remember, you know, uh, when, when these tempting voices arise, I, I, can, I can remember just like what, what uh, Bodhisattva did, you know, he, you know, when animals started screaming, like, why am I doing this? What am I, what am I doing it for, you know? And so that, um, and from that point, you know, that part of me really rises up in the air. All of that energy of the fighting, once it's overcome, it, it gets released and it, it sort of propels me on that higher plane where, you know, I feel the Dharma going through me. And so all of it is, is for me, is, is, is just the, the depiction of what happens in, 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 in my day-to-day practice. Thank you. Anybody else? I know you said that we should put aside the cultural differences, but I'm having a really hard time getting past the bartering of Chandavati. I feel it as tension in my body. I don't feel like I can just put it aside. I feel alienated from Kasapa. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's to one extent or another some aspect of that uh, cultural gap or um, space is present in almost all the tales, different culture, different times. Um, so um, if, if that's where it is for you and that's, that's the place where you stop, then that's the place where you stop. Uh, there is a number of teachings here. Um, so let's, let's continue on and see how it is. Uh, we're not going to explore that aspect of it because it's not relevant to this story within the context of what we're exploring. It is relevant on a lot of other levels, including heritage, that's part of the Ango. Um, but it's not, I don't consider it at this point to be the focal point that I would like to focus on while respecting what you're saying. I was, there's a couple things I was thinking. Um, I read something maybe in the, before he was Buddha about if you were a, a teacher like yourself, that, you know, your job is for the student to surpass you. It's for the what? For the student to surpass you mm-hmm. and surpass your understanding. But that's not my life. That's yours. So in my life as a teacher, I have a colleague I share a classroom with who's like 25 years younger than I am. Sometimes I feel threatened. What if people think she's a better teacher than I am? What if they like her better than I am? But isn't it my job as a bodhisattva to actually foster that, to promote her growth, and to help her to become as good and as you know as she can be, to help as many kids as she can help to reach their potential? And the other, other thing that struck me was the elephants and, and those times in the midst of our delusion where something is like, wait a minute. What's going on? And I teach high school choir, and I have the advanced chorus, and kids want to be in it. And I don't take everybody in it. And sometimes there are kids that come. I had this year, I had kids come and say, I don't want to be in it. I have college to get ready for. And then I have kids that that have been in it, but they're a pain in the ass, and I want them out. <laughs> so I had the situation in September last month where one girl wants back in, I got her removed, and the other girl wants out. 
It's like, I'm trying to keep the other girl out. I'm trying to keep the other girl. And I'm like, wait a minute, what am I doing? This, this one wants out and this one wants in. Why am I fighting this? You know, so what's, what's really important in that situation? Just, so just, you know, those, those things where it's like, I got to be awake to my vow and see through, see through the shit. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting uh, conundrum when we're in that situation. And this happens all the time within the, um, functional, uh, running, if you will, or uh, functionality of both the temple and the monastery uh, is the tension between uh, what, what helps it function and organizationally run and what's in the best interest of the people involved in making that decision and putting those two things together. So, for example, some, two or three people applying for one residency spot here, so to give you actual examples, or... Uh, people have been in residency, and um, and so that's a space. There aren't a lot of spaces, and um, and new people want to come in, and so juggling these is, um, you know, what's what's the basic um, time, place, position, and degree, the the relative in the midst of a practice of the absolute. So you know, what are we doing? And it's challenging uh, because there's no. Rule. You have to make a decision, and there's consequences to that decision for you and others. Well, there are two things that call my attention. Um, the first one, it's uh, kind of like the power of the other, or the power of the Sangha, or of these people that say, stop, uh, you're a man of peace, uh, and how important and powerful that is at all times when one is not sure what to choose. Mm-hmm. Um, taking like, I mean, or, or seeing it uh, in the sense of the emptiness of the other, like who is talking, you know, when somebody else says something. Um, but the other thing that caught my attention in this, in this text, in this story, which I find much more linear than the one we read the other day, this is, I find it more simple, like more direct, um, is kind of like how the Bodhisattva agrees when the girl is there. So what is that about? Um, well, I don't know. I just, I mean, I feel that he was more clear about not killing animals, like, mm-hmm. and that's a vow that I guess it's very clear, like not mm-hmm. killing, no. But when it comes into kind of like romance or like, I don't know, this, or, know or like romance, romance. Or, <laughs> or like, or, I don't know, but like this kind of like, you know, other kind of energy, <laughs> um, I guess maybe the vows or whatever it is are more at stake. Or for some bodhisattvas, like this one and others. But, so, um, it may help to understand or to concentrate that the tales are told from the perspective of the journey of the bodhisattva to the Buddha, mm. of that particular person's journey. That's what the tale is about. Uh, it's not about any of the other cultural, accoutrements, if you will. It's about how does a bodhisattva, you and I, uh, actually go along on the path to become a Buddha. So that's what these tales are. Past lives of the Buddha along the way through rebirths. Um, and, of course, most of all of these tales probably are from the perspective of a particular agenda and a particular culture. So you, you have to see past that. It's interesting, there are koans that we use that challenge us to... They're framed in such a way that they challenge us to see past our own particular agenda into a larger perspective without 
negating that gender. Uh, and I'm not going to be more specific because there's, a, uh, there's an appropriateness to that and, and when it's used. Um, and so um, also I want to note that um, there are seven uh, Jataka tales uh, on sexual desire. Um, so we're dealing with, for the most part, celibate monks. We have to take males, we have to take that and apply it to our life, beyond the maleness and beyond um, uh, the celibacy, and apply it to a layperson's life in our context. So we're not limiting our perspective of that. It's from another perspective, as you know, we could study this from the historical perspective of um, gender predominance and power and so on and so forth. It's not a function tonight. I'm not saying that isn't worth studying. It's just not what we're doing here tonight. Um, so, um, let's go on. What else do you see? Especially given what I just said. Behind you, there's a microphone. Why don't you go ahead, Rafi? Yeah. Um, I'm struggling with this because I... Uh, because I, I want to honor what you just said, but also what Laura said really uh, resonated with me. Um, and as someone who's sort of grown up with these sorts of tales, like as a kid, the cultural context is really alive in my life. And I think that to the extent that this is about temptation and the role of objectification within temptation, right? This person is not considering much beyond an objectified view of something that's being presented to him, mm-hmm. something, right? Because that's mm-hmm. that's the way he's perceiving yep. it. Um, to the extent that, Again, yeah, to the extent that it's about temptation, I feel like we have to consider the role of gender. Yeah, this is not about, um, ultimately, you can look at it from that way, and, you, and there's no doubt you can, and we can pursue that. Um, this is about desire. That's what this tale is basically about, desires, which we all have regardless of gender, which we all have uh, and associated with desires, there are other aspects of, um, I don't want to name them, but present in this tale, which are pretty obvious. Um, so, um, I mean, I, I guess, sorry to interrupt, I just, I feel like in, in the exploration of desire, objectification, and it doesn't need to be in this context necessarily, but this idea that when something appears to me, it is so alluring that I cease to contemplate that which is beyond what meets the eye. Right. I mean, like, absolutely. Like that seems pretty ripe. And so, like, what are the mechanisms, the mental mechanisms that get this person, this bodhisattva, the future Buddha, to to um, to have all that throw out the wind, be thrown out the window? And when when this person appears, says, oh, "Okay, let's do this." So, what are the mechanisms? Well, I mean, to me, that's where the exploration of gender comes in. Is like, what is it that causes us to that causes him? And you know, we can say in his specific time causes mm-hmm. him to objectify the body that's in front of him. And then in my life, what is it that causes me to objectify the body or the bodies in front of me that allow me to forget in that moment my vows? Yeah, is that the only body that's being objectified? No, of course not. Right? Objectification. Objectification is just a sort of shorter way of saying that we um, perceive form and we get attached to form. Right? We don't. Um, how about your body in that situation? Well, I'm objectifying a certain kind of pleasure, right? I'm, I'm, I'm not... Um, I'm turning into a thing, something that is fleeting and impermanent, mm-hmm. and allowing it to move me and to really overwhelm my ability to mm-hmm. uh, 
I don't know, be with what is. Okay. Thank you. I feel like speaking to desire and objectification, participating in a culture of objectification is, um, oh, a woman is being offered. I can say yes to this. Um, and in accepting that, you kind of object yourself. Cause, and then you, re, you can reflect on that and think, this isn't actually who I am. I didn't necessarily consent to this exchange being a possibility. Does that make sense? Are you suggesting that as a way of looking at it that's helpful to practice? Sorry, say that again? Well, I'm, I'm trying to understand what you just said. Uh, that you can look at yourself as an object. And are you suggesting that's a way to address the desire when you look at someone else as an object of desire? What are you suggesting? It's not clear to me. Um, I guess the like the culture of um, exchange of... The culture of objectification of anybody... Mm-hmm. Um, kind of puts an individual in a position of participating in something that they maybe didn't intend to participate in. Well, desires are always like that. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't perhaps our intent, I think, from a, at least a practice perspective. Uh, so here's a, a, uh, a great bodhisattva who's uh, practicing intensively, who's offered a series of bribes, basically, um, and um, in one sense, so this is one side, doesn't matter what he's being offered. Um, so at some point, he's offered enough to abandon his vows. Okay? And that's one of the main points of this tale that's applicable to all of us. Uh, and no matter what that desire is, so I'm putting that aside for the moment, or who it's what it's directed at, because we are objectifying whatever that is, but particularly if it's a, a person, um, then that's, you know, that's a fundamental practice issue, which we all, I think, can relate to. I hope we can, because it's present every day in every way in our life, in little and big ways. On the other side of that, um, there is the objectification of a person by a person, objectification of themselves, and so this is a fairly fundamental uh, perspective of delusion, is this objectification. Uh, it fits very nicely into examining heritage and power and um, the skewed gender power and so on and so forth. Um, and we can spend the next hour looking at that if you want. Um, but I think we're going to sacrifice the tale um, from one perspective. We won't sacrifice it in the service of looking at gender and, and power. And, and so we can do that. Um, I'm trying to steer it more in a, in a direction of seeing it a little more out of context of our present time and respecting the, t- the time from when it came to see what the point of that is and then bring it forth to how it works um, for us in our time and place. But from my perspective, I first would like to look at what what is... What were the intended teachings of this tale? Why is the tale framed this way? Um, and then we can look a lot more at the relevance to our culture and our place and our time. I'm not dismissing any part of what anybody is saying or any of the struggles that these tales bring up. 
Um, but I'm also trying to direct it in a, in a way that um, we can get what we can get from the teaching of its time and place and then apply it to our time and place. Speak up. She's, she's, she's actually wanted to speak. I know. I know. Well, it's okay. Oh, you have a mic. <laughs> okay, so um, that's how I see it from a 21st century perspective. So um, I have decided to do a practice, to practice. We, we have this ango, right? And on ango, I decide, okay, I'm going to practice more, I'm going to sit more. And that's as Bodhisattva decided to go away and be more of a priest. And here is my big desire in the morning to stay in bed, and that's my biggest bribe. And I have to choose. Either I go and continue my practice, I go out on a cold air, travel to get to the temple, or I stay at home at bed. And <laughs> that's how I would translate, uh, translate this uh, objectification thing. And what, what I like about this tale is, as already one person mentioned, that there is the Sangha who shouts at you, stop. Mm -hmm. And also what I find important, Bodhisattva doesn't... Um, doesn't only notice the shouts, he also hears the screams of animals. And um, I think that's what I should bring more in my life, different shouts. Let's say we were just sitting downstairs and there were cars beeping and beeping outside. And at this time, like never, I weren't distracted by that, but I usually get distracted by that. And now I'm thinking that could be my shout to, to hear as beep as more a breathe to hear it as a, be concentrated on what you're doing, be concentrated mm -hmm. on your breathing instead of thinking like, or they distract me. Mm -hmm. So that's all. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. Do you have a microphone? Yeah. I do. Um, so I appreciate that you want us to look at this from a perspective of how does this really apply to every person and not focus specifically on, um, for example, gender issues. And nevertheless, um, I am going to um, just say a couple things. You know, one is this this cultural context of a faraway place and a faraway time. Mm -hmm. You know, in wedding ceremonies here in the United States, fathers walk their daughters down the aisle and give them away to their mm -hmm. husbands. So that's not that far away. Um, and that when I hear you say um, to sort of let go of those sort of cultural views and kind of look at the universal, I want you to know that um, what that feels like to basically be told, and that's what's happening in this story. There's one woman in this story, mm -hmm. and she has no agency of her own. Mm -hmm. And of all the Jataka tales, many of the women are not even named. Mm -hmm. They are devices in the stories, same as in the koan literature in the perhaps 10 koans out of 700 in which any women are even present, they're not named and they're not um, exercising any agency. And so when I hear, put that aside and focus on kind of the universal, um, I want you to know that that's painful to me mm -hmm. and that um, I look at um, bringing up these issues as Dharma study right alongside what I think you're trying to pull out as sort of larger universal themes, that this is an aspect of our humanity. And, and while, um, you know, in the absolute, there is no gender, we live in the relative world. And so to be asked always to take off my lenses and pick up these universal lenses, which are not actually universal, they're 
tend to be male and tend to be white, um, that that has a particular impact in how I have to move through the world and study the Dharma is a constant translation, a constant translation. And so I just would like to, for a moment, just kind of center that as being like important to me. Well, we can go there. We, we can look at it from that perspective. And, and we can explore that. I'm open to that. There are more men than women, so it's a chance for education. Uh, that doesn't mean everybody in the room, no matter what their gender is, feels that way. So let's hear from other people. Um, I... Uh... I actually want to comment on on, on that also, um, but um, but I was thinking of, of of sangha because a couple of folks have mentioned that the importance of of the sangha in saying stop, and um, my mind has been in like not the great greatest place lately, um, and um, let's wait till after Tuesday. Right. Yes. No. You you hit the nail on the head. Um, I'm I'm keeping my fingers crossed. When you can um, be either really depressed or really. It was a big deal for me to be here tonight and not like phone banking. Um, but um, but I'm thinking about mob. I'm thinking about mob mentality and and, and mob violence. You know, so um um you know I'm thinking about like like for sangha in terms of you know trusting sangha. Like I trust my sangha. I totally trust my sangha. Um. I'm also aware of the possibility of putting one's trust in a group of people that are, are not, that don't necessarily have the best intentions. And, and, um, and, and I, I don't know even really necessarily what point I'm, I'm, I'm making with this. It's just something that came up for me. And I, I guess for me, it, you know, it comes back to um, like having like the precepts, you know, and having that like, uh, not only an internal moral compass, but like those, you know, a set of clearly defined um, principles that that we go back to. That like, no, you don't do this because like I could totally relate to like what Vadim was saying about like eating meat and everything. And like, it's so easy to just be like, oh, it's okay, you know. And it's so easy to get swept up, you know, with what other people say. So I just that was just something that came came up for me. Um, and then the other thing I'll just I'll just kind of quickly add to the the conversation about gender is that um, yeah is that for me it strikes me is that it's it's very, it's also very much an issue of, of of karma and like it's it's alive it's very much uh, alive and you know I've been reading the book um the first Buddhist women which is like the, the stories of the um, Tiragata tales and and it's really great and I'm reading the section about the the prostitutes and the courtesans and um and and she does the author does a wonderful job about talking about projection and like how men have projected their desires of women there's desires for women on the women like in their like to create this whole story about like women being insatiable when they're just like wanting to practice and like get on with their lives Mm -hmm. so um like that, I don't know, that, again, that's just sort of struck me. So I don't know if I have a larger point to make about that other than to point out so, that, like, yeah, this is still, even though it's, like, kind of in this culture and in this time, it's it's still very present. So how do you see that pro- projection in terms of your own life? How do I see that pro- in terms of my own life? Um, other than, like, having been subject to that? That or any, any place? Um... Yeah, I, well, certainly that's have, having been subject to that, having been having had my motives misunderstood a thousand times, mm-hmm. um, and um, 
and then for me, you know, again, bringing it back to myself and never thinking like with everything else, like I, it's, I still can't always say, oh, the problem is there. The problem is out there. Like I always have to ask like, where do I also do this? You know, Mm -hmm. how do I do this to other people? How do I objectify other people? How do I project onto other people? You know, and I do it all the time. And that's something that I'm continuously Mm -hmm. working on. So I think what you just said is really important that when we see um, political gender issues, desire issues, um, uh, power issues that, that we feel or and or are convinced that we're being subjected to and we are endlessly from many different levels and directions um, what is our responsibility what is our contribution to that without in some way and so here's the danger of this that we're now being responsible for um, someone else's contribution um, and so to be clear about that that where is another way to frame that is where is my power in this in a, in a positive sense um, and do I want to use the power? Because there's a price and a responsibility in using that power. So if you're going to use that time and energy and life in that direction, then something else is not going to be used. So all of these things factor into it and have to do with the responsibility of, of how we're going to do our best to practice the Bodhisattva path. Um, and so someone may invest a lot of time and energy in a political, uh, addressing political, other maybe more gender-oriented. There are endless issues, obviously, because life is suffering. So we've got plenty of places. Um, So I'd like to hear from some of the boys. I'll say that, like, you know, the first thing we learn about Chandavati is that she's the beautiful daughter, right? But she's not the first person getting used here, right? Um, Like the third thing, second thing we learn about Kashapa, even before he gets hairy, is that he's the royal priest's best friend, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, Chakra says, Chakra's upset about the practice of Kashapa, right? So he's using this king to say, like, no, you're going to get all this stuff. And I, I mean, maybe this is, like, well before unreliable narrators, but I'm like, I don't know if this guy can deliver. We don't even address that. You know, he just parades this, um, oh, you'll be the king of all India. Just go make this guy do this thing. And this guy isn't like, oh, well, I don't think that's something my friend would be into because, like, Back when we were buds, he's like, no, I don't need any of that worldly stuff. I'm going to go practice. You know, he's like, no, I just want that. So um, he's using Kashapa in this, in mm-hmm. that sense. And the daughter is there, but... Um, so why is he using Kashapa? Well, I mean, he, he doesn't see past the desire. Say that again. He doesn't see past his desire. He just okay, wants that that's thing. That's the point. That's the point. Um, all right, go on. And, I mean, it takes... That's where Sangha comes in, like... This guy is selling out his best friend. It takes this crowd of people and then this crowd of animals to say, wait a minute, this isn't you. Mm-hmm. you know. Well, of course it is him. Right. I mean, that's a part of all of us. Um, uh, it's not all of him. And um, Okay, let me stop there. I don't want to, because I don't... All right. I don't want to say too much at this point. Stephanos. Um... So, uh, I just want to say that I'm I'm really upset right now. So I'm also I'm coming from that place, mm-hmm. um, and I, I also want to point out that you know I'm a cisgendered, able-bodied, heterosexual white male mm-hmm. living in America right now, um, and 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 hearing this tug of war between Sangha and you on the one hand, 
I'm like, I'm trying to do a few things. There are a few things that are going on for me. On the one hand, I'm like, I'm putting Hojin in your place and I'm imagining Hojin saying those exact same words. And I can actually, I can really imagine her saying those same words and trying to imagine what the conversation between the teacher and the Sangha would be like in that instance. Um, and I'm having a really hard time wondering what that conversation would be. I think it would have, I think it would take a different direction, have a different tone. Um, so I hear what you're saying about us wanting to transcend certain, you know, certain boundaries. And at the same time, I want to, um, I want to bring in some of the other, the, so the resources that we've been given during the Sango, um, in, you know, Reverend agent angel Kyoto Williams talking about spiritual bypassing and talking about people wanting to head, you know, straight into the absolute and like kind of, you know, sweep all that relative stuff under the rug. Um, and, um, and, and Rebecca Solnit, not in the book that we were assigned, but in another book, she quotes a, uh, Buddhist Tibetan, uh, a former Buddhist Tibetan nun who, who talks about anger is not, a, not as a poison necessarily, but as, as our wisdom, um, screaming, uh, mm-hmm. screaming out. Um, and that the, the, the real poison aside, the toxic side to that is actually aggression. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, and, and, and I see, and I want to tie it into the story and I see, I see the Bodhisattva screaming, you know, we, in Rinzai, the scream is used as a device. Um, the, the animals are screaming at him. These, these can mean many different things, but it's, it's a moment of, 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 of refocusing and attention on, on something else. Um, and and like a lot of fairy tales, you know, it kind of, it, it glosses over what it's actually pointing at. So I don't know what this is pointing at right here at the, at the end of this page, um, of this, this Jataka tale. Um, I think that I feel like the value for it in me in, well, not just in this last paragraph, but in the whole story is how he withdraws from society, um, to, to purify himself in a way, um, and whether or not this God chakra is or is not a part of him, is or is or is not a part of his consciousness, is or isn't real, um, you know, he, he comes back and he faces all of these, these issues, wealth, um, uh, dominance, deference, um, reward, comfort. Um, and, and he's like, no, no, I got it. Actually, this isn't me. And then he's like, he's off again. Like, where is he going? Why is he off in a rush so much? Like, what what just happened there? Like, what is that? How is that a skillful teaching? You know, Roshi Galen Godwin, when she was here a couple of months ago, she talked about the statue in the foyer of Avalokiteshvara having, you know, it's not a halo around her head. It's it's flames. And, you know, we're sitting here, we're sitting in fire lotus temple. It's, it's where lotuses sitting in the fire, like you walk right outside the doorway and you see like the physical manifestations of suffering, um, whether it be um, like abject poverty or the, the, the divisive uh, and very kind of gross manifestations of, of wealth, like this, this clinging to, mm-hmm. to power and um, to a kind of power over resources. That's very, um, it's very destructive. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, like, why is our hero heading off into the sunset? Like, 
like in a flash. Like, where is he going? There's a lot more work to be done. So, you know, you, certainly that's a perspective at a, in a time of culture where the, quote, hero of spiritual practice was the monastic, either in solitary or uh, monastic practice. Um, but you can also look at it that the, the point is not um, that he's levitating and floating back into his uh, solitary practice, um, but you can look at it um, that he made a bad mistake. He made a bad mistake. This great bodhisattva made a bad mistake and um, looked way past his vows, forgot his vows. And um, in the course of doing that, independent of the other issues we're discussing from our context, um, turned back to his vows, turned back to um, uh, his commitment to the Dharma and his intention. So you, you asked, you know, how is this, this isn't the word to use, but how is this relevant or how is this Dharma? And one of the lessons of this that you could look at is that he makes mistakes, this great bodhisattva. And it is a he, certainly. Um, but all of us, he, she, and everyone else, makes mistakes in practice, makes mistakes that come out of desire. And, um, and what happens then um, to us individually in terms of practice? Um, I have to say, I don't consider, you know, you're welcome to consider it any way you want. I, I'm not considering that I'm at war with the Sangha here or fighting with the Sangha here. Um, I'm trying to do my best to both offer this uh, from the traditional perspective and also keep it open to the current perspective. And there's, as I laid out earlier, there are some perspectives that are, I feel are worthwhile in the traditional perspective. Uh, Suiko pointed out that that perspective is painful um, to, to people, and particularly women, but not necessarily just women. Incomplete, big time. Yes. Um, and and then I was hoping to hold the whole thing. That doesn't seem to be working well. <laughs> so I'm quite willing to let go of whatever specific lessons there are within this context and open it up. But I'd like to hear from people who haven't spoken yet. Yes. Um. My thought, first of all, is there's like 8 million of these stories. They're all fairly similar. Mm -hmm. So if that wasn't supposed to be the topic, then why choose this one with this like very disturbing thing like in the dead center of it, where of course it's hard to think of anything else but that. But, <laughs> okay, of course. But aside from that, um, at the end... I was thinking he does do one thing before he does go back to his hermitage because, I mean, he's already caused a lot of damage. He's, like, kind of forsaken his vows, and he's scared the animals, and he's upset the townspeople. And then, like, kind of, like, to make up for it, he, like, gives the Dharma before he goes back. And it reminds me of this time I was upstairs with Yukon, and, like, he killed this 
enormous water bug. And I go, hey, you're not supposed to do that. And he goes, he goes, well, we can't just leave it there. It's going to freak people out. I'll do something nice later to make up for it. <laughs> and I had never thought of that before, that you could just do something to make up for it. But I guess you can. I mean, it's probably best not to do the thing in the first place. But if you do do something bad, you should do something good after. <laughs> Well, I think that's a good point. There's a, so we're a little off topic, but it's, it's an important point. Um, in this relative world, we have to make decisions. I mentioned this before. We have to balance things. So how, how is it if we have cockroaches running around the building and people come in? And we do sometimes. And we have to bring in an exterminator, which has its own cost, and I don't mean financially, environmentally. So these are decisions that have to be made. And there's a karma to no matter to any any decision you make coming out of that, killing the bugs, not killing the bugs, and there's effects of that, and there's a responsibility for that. For that, uh, it does bring to mind Dido's um, uh, old habit of um, when he would say, "See a, uh, a mosquito," uh, and there was somebody around with him, a sangha member, and he would kill the mosquito and then say, uh, "The sangha member's name was John." Oh. I just killed John. <laughs> so you can interpret that any way you want, but that was his particular teaching in, in that way of, I think, in a way, acknowledging that he was killing. Um, and, you know, we kill all the time, right? You kill all the time. I kill all the time, right? And just to be here in these circumstances is endless killing. And there's no way to avoid it. Now what are we going to do? And uh, so... Um, love to hear some other voices you know I, I what what i've been sort of mulling over is what happens to me when i objectify somebody so what happens when i'm caught in desire and short answers i get very small um but i think that you know at the heart of it what it is is trying to um it's trying to fill that hole that need to speak to that if you would. I feel uncomfortable I feel vulnerable I don't want to feel that let me get away from that so let me go reach for something that's going to let me avoid that and not feel that it's, but it's false it's not true why do, why do you think uh, the Bodhisattva was called Harry Kasapa it's unattractive to, to, you know, maybe, maybe because, um, and and human maybe too. You know that a, a hairy person is somebody who's caught in the brambles, caught in you know entangled. So, um, okay. Anybody else? What? I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. I didn't hear. I, what did you? Oh, well, you, you're you're headed in the right direction. No, I am. I I actually wanted to say uh, that I keep. I for me, I am. For me, the 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 question I have, um, and I'm thinking about the mind of the future Buddha. Mm -hmm. um, he was able to say no to 
lots of things. But until he wasn't. Until he wasn't. And that's that, never happened anymore. No, and no, uh, no, and that wasn't is. And you said when I said romance, you said, mm, and everybody laughed. But I, I don't know. I mean, why, why he agree when he was in front of the girl? Was it like a sexual thing? Was it like a love thing? Um, was it like a I don't know positioning being the the husband of you know like the is it she the princess I think or is what is what is it and and if you could talk about it um, I think it would be very beneficial. Well, I'm, I'm no expert <laughs> on these by any means. I don't know anymore. Or, or I don't. I am. I'm you, curious. You're the expert. <laughs> We're all experts. We're all struggling to to look into this. Looking at it from that, what I know about that cultural perspective, the, and as we said before, the woman was property. She happened to be beautiful and desirable. So to me, it seems a no-brainer. From a, Do you think um, it was property? Yes, I know it was. Yeah. I, I know that for a fact, that in that time and place, there's the king and there's this property. And... Um, you know, we're not talking about a democratic system here. What if it was love? Like, what if he fell in love with her? Uh, possible, but irrelevant. Yeah, I mean, what if it was a love issue? No? Well, I think it changes it, everything, don't you yeah. think? Yes, but we have to work within the context of the tale. I, I mean... <laughs> That's, uh, never mind. Um, and so what we have here is the information that we have. He was offered this piece of property, a bribe, which, you know, um, I mean, offer him your beautiful daughter, uh, he says, in marriage. Loma Kashapa had been alone for a long time and is a man. I mean, that sounds pretty direct to me, you know, the implication of that. Um, And at a time when... um, there were slaves when people were bartered and daughters were married off for power. Um, historically, it seems very clear to me. Um, again, I'm not a historian. I'm not an expert. I, it just seems common sense on that basis. And um, So let me get back to Harry Kashapa. Um, what's the relationship between Harry Kashapa and the animal realm? I, I actually wasn't going to, I thought Emily wanted the microphone, so I was trying to direct the microphone towards her. Um, well, he's more like an animal. That's right. Yeah. So he actually, time. yeah. So he would actually, I, you know, it seems like the way he's portrayed anyway is bringing him closer to the animals that he um, almost slaughters. Okay. And in terms of desire? Um, in, I mean, in, in this, in the sort of like, in the, you know, the, the sort of archetypal, you know, the, the way those stories go, you know, if he's more like an animal, then he would have stronger desires. He would have, but he put, it puts him in the animal realm. At that time, in that particular instance, um, is there anyone here who is not in some way or sometime in their life in that realm? Do you know the realm? I don't know. I, 
I don't have much to say, but I didn't appreciate your characterization of like ancient Indian culture property. Like it was, it's way more complicated than that. Okay. You want to say a little bit more about that? No, I mean, it's like, you know, I mean, the investigation of Indian patriarchy is like one of my primary spiritual investigations and like, sorry, the investigation of, of Indian patriarchy is one of my primary, primary spiritual investigations. And like, you know, we've had a woman prime minister in India before. Like, it, it's like, to me, this, I don't know what I wanted to say earlier to try to make this constructive. What I want to say earlier is like, to me, I see this as an opportunity to allow the arrows to meet in midair. Like, I'm curious as to what, why you chose this tale. I still don't really know. Like I, mm-hmm. I, I get threads of it. Um, and to me, like to study the relative is, is only a, um, an effort to try to allow the arrows to meet. Right. Like I, I don't personally, it, it well, the thing I wanted to say before that, which is why I got the mic in the first place, was I wanted to hold space if anyone had strong emotions they wanted to process with the group. But like that aside, if anyone, if there are strong emotions, please speak up. Um, but that aside, like, yeah, I'm interested in the arrows meeting and like us talking about where they meet. Okay. Um, I just had one other comment that I wanted to make about the gender issues, so-called, is that like um, in a fantasy world, I would banish the phrase gender issues and race issues, um, because we're all practicing gender issues and race issues at every moment, all the time, wherever we are. And sometimes that practice is um, knowing how to be safe or taking up a lot of psychological space, wondering about it. Sometimes that practice is being completely oblivious to that aspect of one's life and experience, Um, but it's never not operative. Um, And so when I hear the the phrase gender is issues or race and gender issues i um to me it signals a kind of um not seeing one's own racial and gender there's no one that doesn't have racial and gender issues ever anywhere and so i just would like to bring that out of sort of a a, a marginal space you know gender issues is sort of a marginal issue and be like that's something that we're all In the midst of. When I say that, let me give you this back in my words and see if um, I'm reflecting accurately what you're saying in a different way. So when I'm saying that, I'm compartmentalizing it uh, and thereby, in a sense, diminishing it, limiting it. Or or putting yourself outside of it, (coughs) placing yourself outside of something that you actually are not outside of, Mm -hmm. you know, and that only certain people get to do that in mm-hmm. certain circumstances. And those people are power. Those people have um, are a dominant identity within that particular, you know, um, social aspect of our identities. Okay. Thank you. Anybody else? Why, why did you pick this story, actually? It's, I think it's an interesting question. I picked this story because I was interested in the looking at it from the traditional values of it that it offers. Well, it's about desire, and it's about the mistakes of a bodhisattva, and and what happened then. And I think this—it's um, so nice to see him make a mistake. Most of the stories are him just like always, constantly doing the right thing. And yeah. It's like we get to see him be human. Yeah. It's funny, like the animal realm, but he's actually being very human. Well, also, I identify with the animal realm personally in my own practice. So, um, and I think I've been very successful in bringing forth how, uh, in this case, someone who's practiced a long time and intensively made a bad mistake and then um, practiced on from there and everybody lived happily ever after. And um, 
in a, in a tiny and slightly different way, I think we've replicated that, or I have replicated that this evening. So um, not comparing myself to a great bodhisattva who became the Buddha, but all of us have this opportunity, of course, in practice to make mistakes, to see what happens, and to practice that to the best of their ability. And that's what I've tried to do tonight. And I think the power of Sangha is, is um, very um, present here and wise. And I appreciate that. And I've learned a lot tonight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe not. <laughs> so I'm hoping for uh, a voice I haven't heard. There are three or four. I'm going to keep it short. Um, to me, examining our desire and examining the power dynamic between different genders or different races, they're closely, they're closely related. And Donna and another person said something about, yeah, objectification and also projection. To me, desire takes life away. And when you think about objectification and projection, you're basically, if you project your desire onto other people or fear onto other people, you're taking the other person's life away. Um, and that's what the killing is about, animal realm, desire, killing, either killing yourself or other people. So I don't think it's necessarily, you know, I really appreciate you opening up the conversation and um, have the sangha, have the conversation flow. And I think it made me, you know, think more. It's just never two separate things. Um, our desire and how we um, how we look at that and what we do with it, it's really important because getting entangled into our, our desire is inevitably creating some power struggle, power dynamic, either with ourselves or other people. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's, you know... Um, yeah. Can we separate out the threads of all of these? Yeah. Seemingly very specific issues. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because I yeah. think it's, you can see all, they are also all entwined, uh-huh. and yet they also, I, I think it's important to appreciate that each one can stand on its own and can be looked at on its own for that value, yeah. particularly personally. Yeah. Because I think yeah. um, each of us um, have our own personal places where desire steps in and overwhelms us, and they're specific. In, yeah. At least in my experience, they're quite specific. <laughs> and some uh, melt away through time and age and practice. Um, some don't. Yeah. And what are you going to do then? Yeah. Uh, so that's so, that at least is both my experience of myself and also seeing it in, in other people who've practiced a while. Yeah. So just some of my reflection. And I, I really enjoy the conversation. It's, it's really alive. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Um, when I read these tales that come from like the Pali Canon era of, um, of Buddhism, what really strikes me is um, the last paragraph, he says uh, he recognizes his danger. And it seems like everything is framed in the, f- the sense that the world is a dangerous place for the practitioner. And that, um, I don't know what your name is, but the fact that like there are good desires and it could be love or there could be like a different way of relating with the world is, is just not part of the narrative whatsoever. And pretty much everybody acts badly here. Um, you know, they double cross their friends. The gods um, is acting in pretty much the most base way that he wants to uh, uh, ruin someone's dharma practice. And um, so it just, it seems like a pretty negative, almost, you know, 
like our current era in a certain sense, like expecting the worst of and bringing out the worst in, uh, in Is everybody. Is different than our present political era? <laughs> no, it doesn't seem, um, but it just, it, it strikes me that it's a very particular way of, of, of looking at life and looking at practice. For me personally, um, I'm, so here I'm speaking personally. This is what scares me about the politics is that sometimes I can't tell the good guys from the bad guys. Sometimes it's clear to, to me. So I'm just speaking personally here. Sometimes it's very clear. Uh, often I can't. Anybody else? Yes, yes. I, I almost went that. Do you want to do it? I was just going to talk about desire. Because it said, offer him your beautiful daughter. Seeing the girl, this time he agrees. Was it because he had a desire for her? And on the other hand, did she desire him? And he gave a talk, but he never gave a talk on desire. He gave on selflessness, repentance, but not on desire. And the reason he agreed was because of desire. So it's just, just yeah, yes, exactly. (laughs) So is that an example of spiritual bypassing? Well, I'm, I'm being a little hesitant to answer that. <laughs> um, it, it would seem to, to um, but on the other hand, the, the tales are, in a way, simplified, simplified and trying to point at some specific points in the context of their time and place. And so we, here we are, 1,500 or so years later, looking at it through our desires, if you will, mm-hmm. and from our perspective. So if we're talking now, sure. If we're talking then... I doubt it. I, I, I think they were fixed in a society that's as described and relevant to that society and making the points. So, you know, how do, how do we want to approach this tale? Which, of course, we've been discussing for the past hour or so. And um, we can do whatever we want to do with it. Um, let me say something about desire, because there's nothing wrong with desire. In fact, it's essential uh, for spiritual practice. The question is, where is it based? What is it resting on? So it's, if it's resting on self-centered desires to get what you want um, at the expense of others, well, already there's a problem. There's others, and there's self-centered. And that's guaranteed to cause suffering. If it's resting on our vows, on, on the bodhisattva vows, on the desire to see what is the uh, true difference between self and other, and how does that actually work? in our real life, then that desire, a bodhisattva desire, is the heart of, it's bodhicitta really, it's the heart of what's at practice. So in this tale, it seems, for the most part, his desires, except at the end, when he reconnects to his, you know, vows and teleports away, um, um, you know, he's struggling with his self, with an arising of self-centered desires. And the theoretical point of this is that's present in all of us. And um, what do we do then? At that moment, when we're in the midst of, um, of that pull, and as someone said, the world gets very, very small, um, where do we find ourselves? And, and, you know, he had enough sensitivity to hear the cries of the world. Um, you know, think of all the times we've been pulled by desires and not heard that, uh, which I think vastly outnumber <laughs> the times that we have. Um, maybe the thousandth time that we've 
been there, done that, and seen the result of that, that we're, we're finally a little hesitant and, and there's a little more space and we can hear a little more. Um, so um, it's interesting. Uh, Ayo and I just watched the movie Fargo last night. And um, it's a fabulous movie, and, uh, but it's completely about karma. And you just want to cringe the whole time because every time somebody's doing something except the, the uh, police officer, the, the, the detective, uh, played by Francis McDormand, what an actress. Um, you know, you could just see this rolling downhill and another person's going to be harmed or killed and it's not going to go well and all out of desire. All out of the stupidity of desire. One of the Academy Awards, a great film. Uh, and I recommend it. As it, To me, it's actually a very Buddhist film if you can put up with the, the violence. Um, but, you know, what did the Buddha say caused suffering? Yeah. I mean, that's really, in a sense, um, what, what suffering's about um, and the relationship to how we understand ourself and the objects outside ourself. And um, um, and in seeing that, which practice gives us an edge to do, uh, or an opportunity to do, what do we do then? That's, in a sense, the point of this. Um, that what will we do when we're creating difficulty and suffering? And um, how do we practice that? Anybody else? Yes. Okay. Um, just briefly, then. Um, two things come to mind. One, um, a practice that I'm, I'm sort of thinking about, which I think is really relevant to the story, is like the the idea of consent. And so, when I'm in a place of like desire, it's like who's involved, who's consented to what, um, and even like within my own practice, like my desire to awaken. When there are parts of me that feel sticky, like it's like what do I consent to letting go of? Is something that I'm thinking about a lot right now. Um, and so I don't know. That just has been like alive for me. Is just the the idea of consent in like in the ten in the ten directions. Um, and the second we were talking about spiritual bypassing. And for me, like when I read these tales, um, again, you know, like I grew up with so many, with so much stuff like this, and it's like really I, I feel like I've heard them a lot, and like you know from grandparents and stuff like that. And um, you know, to me, like it's actually the first paragraph that's the most interesting because if I you know if I try to put myself in in Kasapa's shoes, um, you know, if my best friend is the king and I'm trying to you know, uh, alleviate suffering in the world, I would say that as a pretty big opportunity to like, to do some stuff, like to, to like do some good things, you know, like, and so it's just like, what, what is this desire? And, you know, I, I, I relate to it culturally, like, what is this desire in my heritage that like, where our, you know, our, in, in our caste system, the, the Brahmins were above the, the, the Kshatriyas, the, 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 um, the priests and the holy people, holy men were above the, the rulers of kings of power. And so like, what is it that, you know, actually like, to me, it's like, I, I look at the root of these traditions and I see spiritual bypassing everywhere. Um, and I, and, and I also am totally unaware who does more good, the, the counselor who stays behind to counsel the king or the person who, who goes away to the mountain. I mean, I'm, I'm totally of the mindset that it could be the person in the mountain that's actually alleviating more suffering for all beings everywhere. I, I am actually totally in, um, in that inquiry, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. To me, like, just I wanted to share, like, my reading of these things, I just see the spiritual bypassing everywhere. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the, I, I think what's well accepted within spiritual practice is that bypassing is both universal and constant. It's the nature of delusion. The, it's the fundamental nature of delusion. It's, it's the self 
refusing to see the self. And just think of our own practice. You know, in, in a way, practice is an open book test. I mean, we know the answer to the causes of suffering and how to address that. Uh, I mean, the, the Buddhist path is all laid out there. So why do we suffer? <laughs> you know, and one answer to that is spiritual bypassing. You know, we, we bounce off things. And, you know, so I'll just name it in the context of this evening. There's some of the bouncing off here um, in, in a lot of different directions. So in some ways, when I've asked a question, it's been bounced off. In other ways, when other people have asked a question, it's been bounced off. Uh, it's inevitable. It's part of uh, human discourse and discussion. And um, it's not even necessarily a bad thing. And it may not be at all. Uh, the question, because it is inevitable and it's built in, and we are human and we are afraid. And so, you know, the question is, when will we see it? How will we see it? What happens then? And these are very general questions, but that's built into the practice. It's a practice of looking at our, at our bypassing. That's another name for ourself. You know, the big desires, like sexual desire, um, in some ways, yeah, sure, you get sucked into them and you're, you're, you're on some kind of fantasy, but in a lot of ways, they're, they're easier to see because they're so big. Um, the smaller ones are the harder ones. Um, where, you know, where you're just trying to convince somebody to do something for you, right? Minor things all around mm-hmm. constantly that yourself is arising and you're, you know, I want you to do this. And so I'm going to, you know, so, you know, subconsciously trying to figure out how to get you to do what I want you to do. Those, um, those are the, the, the real hard ones. Um, and, and so I go to, I don't know if it was Shugan who said this, um, but quoting the, 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 the Buddha, um, if, if sexual desire was any stronger, nobody would have the chance to awaken. Um, and, and so, yes, that's a strong desire, but the, the smaller micro desires are the, are the ones that I get caught up in every, every day. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm not going to speak from the perspective of some great wisdom here. This is just something I observe in myself and in other people. So I doubt there's a single comment here that's been made by anyone tonight, including myself, that didn't have some sense of the self at play and some subtle manipulation at work. I don't see that as a problem. Um, Our um, practice is to be aware and our awareness is always relative, uh, except when it's very absolute. And in that case, relative doesn't exist, and there's nothing to say about that. Um, but that aside, as long as we have discriminating consciousness, um, we're at play with our separate sense of self as part of the equation. And so what matters at that point to me is our intent. So it's a given that our self is present, and it's never going to go away. Uh, and so those, you know, those micro um, self-referential thoughts and actions and deeds are, are, are part of, you know, it's like asking, can we do something with a pure, absolutely pure, single uh, motivation? And our minds aren't like that. I mean, our minds are ungraspable. Um, and so our, our relative complex human minds are ungraspable. And, and I don't think we want to pin it down. And we want to allow for the energy of our vows 
to inform all of that rather than go after some state of purity where there's no self and we're functioning in the relative world. Such a thing I don't think is possible. And again, I'm not saying this from any great wisdom. I'm just observing my own life and the people I see around me and practice around me and have for a while. So that's what I see. And that's, I think, how it should be. Um, and that's the work. It's why also why practice is limitless and never accomplished. And there's always more. And clarity in any one area of our life doesn't convey clarity in another area. Uh, and, and thus you get lots of challenges and confusions and um, space in our practice uh, when, when we look at that, because someone can be very clear and right on, including teachers, uh, and be very confused. And that's in other areas. So from my perspective, in one way, it's all good. The other way, though, is that power almost always tends to corrupt. And that's why it's Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Um, I'm, I'm not quite convinced that I'll say 100% of the time it tends to corrupt, but I would be comfortable with 99. Um, and, you know, as human beings go, you know, I've met a few human beings in my life where it seems to have corrupted them very, very, very little. Um, um, but that seems to be a great exception uh, because we're blind to where we're blind. And, um, and, you know, a lot of that has come up tonight. So any last questions, comments, thoughts? Okay, can we chant the four vows? Thanks so much for listening. For meditation supplies such as meditation cushions, incense, malas, liturgical instruments, books, and more, visit the Monastery Store at monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.